Well, good morning. I'm excited to get into God's Word with you this morning. I lost my voice last night, shouting at the TV as the Hawks won the Western Conference Finals. So, <laughs> Yeah, I actually brought my Harvest Payless Sport bottle up with me because I'm still exhausted from last night's game. So <laughs> I'm going to have to keep my voice going here. But um, I'm really excited about that. I'm more excited, though. Uh, and, and really excited about announcing that um, we took up a Nepal offering two weeks ago. And I, I brought one number to you last week. I was like, it's amazing, but people kept giving. So uh, we've collected $25,000 for Nepal. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I just want to commend you um, as you've given to that offering. Uh, you are going without because you see those people in Nepal who are going without the basics. And those offerings are going to go straight to putting food on the table for these fellow Christians, and it's going to go straight to giving them blankets and building their houses back up and blessing their churches so they can get right back at the mission and get the gospel out. So you can still give to that. There's envelopes in the, in the lobby, but uh, please just open your hearts to these brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through terrible times right now if you haven't already done so. And I just commend, again, your generosity. Well, we are going through a uh, series on spiritual leadership. This is actually a, a piece of our series in First Timothy called The Front Lines of Faith. Uh, and last week I said we're going we're gonna to spend three weeks talking about spiritual leadership. Well, it's been extended to four because there's no way I can fit all the rest of this passage in, in one message. The whole sermon today is going to be just on one verse about spiritual leadership. And what we're going to see is that spiritual leadership begins in the home. Uh, and today we're going to talk primarily to the wives of leaders on what spiritual leadership means for women And then next week, we're going to talk primarily to the men about what spiritual leadership means for men in the home. The Bible is zeroing in on deacons, but the point of leadership is that leaders set an example for the congregation to follow. So it's not just like our two deacons need to really pay attention. And it's not just like our two deacons' wives should really listen this morning. It's for everyone, because we see a description of godliness that each of us is supposed to embrace. Uh, Really, spiritual leadership starts in the home. The number one measure of spiritual maturity of a man is his marriage. It is the number one measure of spiritual maturity and and leadership as a man. And there are those people throughout history who have done well as spiritual leaders, but their marriage has been a mess. Uh, You've probably heard, no doubt, about John Wesley, one of the most famous ministers and preachers of all time. And he had poured his life into ministry uh, for years. But then in February of 1751, things changed when at the age of 48... Uh, he was crossing the London Bridge and he slipped and, on, on ice and broke his ankle. And then he was taken into the home of 41-year-old Molly Vazile, a wealthy widow with four children. Without even a passing mention in his journal, the two were married eight days later. It was a whirlwind romance. And after just over a week of her taking care of him, they got married. Uh, some biographers have since referred to their ensuing marriage as the 30 years' war. They did not get along. There were reasons for this. John traveled some 25,000 miles on horseback, preaching some 40,000 sermons. It's incredible. And he believed foolishly that his marriage should in no way reduce his travel or ministry, saying, I cannot understand how a preacher can answer it to God to preach one sermon or travel one day less in a married than in a single state. 
meaning he wasn't, he wasn't willing to adjust his life for being married. Well, Molly didn't really respond to this any better. She was bitter that he refused to travel less. He was bitter that she wanted him to travel less. Sadly, rather than repenting and learning to live together and forgiving one another, they became bitter enemies. In an effort to sabotage his ministry, Molly broke into her husband's office, opened his personal mail, and sent damaging letters to his critics and the press because she wanted to destroy his ministry. This included accusing him of adultery with a housekeeper, a charge that he continually denied. Their bitter conflict also escalated to violence. A visiting pastor once reported that he witnessed Molly ripping John's hair out. And John confessed once to shaking and being physically rough with his wife. Their final years were spent apart. She never once set foot in his personal residence. What is believed to be his final correspondence to her reveals their profound bitterness. Dated October 2nd of 1778, his letter says this, As is doubtful considering your age and mine whether we may meet any more in this world, I think it right to tell you my mind once for all, without either anger or bitterness. And he said this, If you were to live a thousand years, you could not undo the mischief you had done. Until you have done all you can towards it, I bid you farewell. Molly died on October 8th, just a few days after she would receive that letter. She was, or a few years after that letter came in. She was dead and buried a few days before her husband even knew. Today, she's buried under a road in London, far away from her husband, buried separately. How sad. This great spiritual leader, a man of God, couldn't get his marriage right. And because of it, his legacy has a black eye. And because this woman would not support her husband in ministry, it tarnished all the ministry that he had done. Spiritual leadership starts in the home. And the Bible challenges all those who would be leaders in the church, specifically deacons, but by extension, everyone who's aspiring to spiritual maturity. Listen, here's the message. Spiritual leadership begins in the home. It begins by husbands, you discipling your wives. And there in that strong relationship, we get to see the Lord using you first in your home. Then you can bring that to church and be useful in the household of God. Let's learn about spiritual leadership together, but first let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your word is giving us insight into this topic of spiritual maturity and leadership. Help us to learn what you would expect of us. And in particular, as your, your Bible this morning focuses in on the wives of leaders, I just pray for women that their hearts would be open to hear your word on what spiritual leadership looks like. We just pray that you would help us to press on to take hold of that for which you took hold of us knowing that it's by your grace that we bear this spiritual fruit. So we trust you, and we have ears that are wide open, Lord, to hear what you have to say. We pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we are in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. Just to recap, we've already been through the few verses on deacons here. Verse 8 said, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then in verse 11, it says this, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now scholars debate if this really means deacons' wives or if it refers to deaconesses, meaning women who are serving in a deacon capacity. Um, I think the strongest case can be made that this is referring to deacons' wives. Why? Well, if you look up to the uh, verse 4, as the Bible was talking to elders, it says, 
about an elder, he must manage his own household well. All right, so it's like, talk about the elder, talk about his home. Same thing's happening with the deacons. It says, talk about the deacon, and then in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified. Talk about his home. It goes on in verse 12 to blatantly say it. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Given the context, I think it's, it's, uh, it's talking about the deacon's wife. And uh, therefore, the Bible, for whatever reason, decides to zoom the camera in on the wives of deacons. Some scholars will say, well, how come they didn't talk to the wives of elders? Well, we don't know. But the point is, it's pretty clear that the camera is zooming in on the wives of deacons. Now, again, this isn't just food for thought for deacons' wives. You know, we have two deacons' wives, but this is a standard for all women to aspire to because uh, deacons' wives are given an example to the flock. All right, so in verse 11, what we find is there's three virtues and one vice laid out for women. It says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The first virtue is this. Number one, spiritual maturity and leadership is this. Number one, dignified. Wives, show respect for your husband and the gospel. What does it mean to pursue being a dignified woman? It means show respect for your husband and the gospel. The idea is the wife is becoming a mature follower of Christ because of her husband's spiritual leadership. All right, and men, listen up. As the Bible starts talking about leaders in the church, elders and and deacons, do you see the pattern? Talk about the man, talk about his wife. Talk about the man, talk about his home. Whenever we evaluate anybody to be a small group leader, pastor, elder, deacon, we look at the man and we look at his wife. Because the best indicator of a man's spiritual maturity is the spiritual health and maturity of his wife. Just past that is his children. How does he manage his household? Doesn't matter if he's got great spiritual gifts and he's a wonderful teacher and he's a savvy businessman and he's done well financially. Doesn't matter. How is his wife? Is she displaying spiritual maturity because of his leadership in his home? That's the number one indicator of his maturity. And man, you just have to understand the Bible, God wants you to be the spiritual leader in your home. The Bible, God wants you to take great spiritual initiative to make sure your wife is growing in the faith, to make sure your children are moving forward in their faith. And the man who sits back passively in an inner tube floating down the lazy river while his wife is working the oars spiritually and trying to get the family moving forward is a man failing to become the man of God God wants him to be. But when it comes to spiritual leadership, we have to be careful. Because sometimes guys hear like, yeah, God wants me to be the leader of my home. He wants me to be the boss. No, that is not what spiritual leadership is all about. Sometimes guys hear that in the Bible, they get all power hungry, and they're like, I'm going to rule the remote from now on. (laughs) Check this out. This is a picture of how some guys act when they find out they're supposed to be the leaders in their home. Do what I say. They boss their kids around, they boss their wives around, and they don't understand That's not spiritual leadership. That's not spiritual maturity. That's spiritual immaturity. Listen, guys, leadership is not domineering your wife. Leadership is not physically intimidating your children. That's not leadership. You need to love her. Don't leash her. You need to cultivate her. Don't control her. 
That's not leadership. Leadership in your home, men, means you're actively developing your wife. You're concerned about the spiritual progress of your children. That can't happen if you're standing still in the faith. You have to grow together. You own it. You evaluate it. You take steps to improve it. And as a result, your wife begins to show great spiritual fruit. Then you bring that to church and other people look and say, wow, look at what he's producing in the home. Let's give him a crack at producing some spiritually mature believers in the church. But it starts in the home. Now, wives, as a result, you're supposed to respond well to your husband's leadership. When he takes initiative to lead in the home, you're supposed to respond to that with respect. You're supposed to let him lead. You're supposed to insist that he leads, and you're supposed to give him great respect as he tries to lead, even when he does it imperfectly. Now, this is really important to understand. Uh, Wives, you're supposed to respond respectfully with dignity to your husbands, whether they're Christians or not. Okay, you can dig into 1 Peter 3 if you want to find out more about what to do if your husband is not a believer. But you're always supposed to respond to the initiative he takes, which if it's righteous, uh, with respect and dignity. You're always supposed to respond to him in a way that doesn't humiliate him or undercut him or disparage him in the eyes of the children of the church or the world. All right? Now, sometimes women will say things like, well, if my husband was a Christian, I'd treat him a lot differently. Do you know what I've noticed? If a wife disrespects her husband when he's not saved, she'll continue to do it after he gets saved. If a wife respects her husband when he's not saved, she'll continue to do it when he becomes a Christian. You see, sometimes you use the spiritual condition of your husband to justify sin. But you still have to be um, a woman who is dignified whether your husband is taking the spiritual initiative or not. Show him respect. Respect him and respect the gospel with your obedience regardless of his spiritual condition. Proverbs 12.4 is a great proverb to talk about how a wife is supposed to respond to her husband. Check it out. It says this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Which wife are you becoming? Check this out. This is a picture of a crown. It's, a, it's an amazing crown. It's a luxurious crown. This is uh, the St. Edward's crown, the most honorable of Britain's crown jewels. Diamonds, rubies, pearls, emeralds, sapphires, tens of millions of dollars that's worth. And guess what? The Bible says that an excellent wife is that. That ain't all bad, huh? Women, you're looking at that and you're like, wow, that's supposed to be me? Precious and priceless and, and, and wow, royal. and That's supposed to be you, but... Here's the thing, the function of a crown is not just to gather all of this uh, respect and worth and attention on itself. You see, when you put it on the one who's becoming king, then that shows his worth. It shows his value and it bestows dignity on him. So as the wife becomes spiritually beautiful, worthy of honor and commendation and respect, that's supposed to also direct praise and commendation to her husband. Her relationship to him is supposed to make him feel like a king. She's supposed to lavish respect and love and honor on him. Contrary to the woman who is like a crown to her husband, who wants to bring him great respect by her uh, behavior and by her relationship, this other woman is like rottenness in his bones. So the one woman is like a crown to her husband and the other woman is like bone cancer. 
like making him rot on the inside, like filling him with agony and pain. And and this is a warning to women. Proverbs actually lists three different types of wives that you never want to become. And one of them is the disgraceful wife. The disgraceful wife shames her husband. She humiliates him publicly. She disrespects him in front of the kids. She won't say nice things about him. She'll fixate on his weaknesses and she'll, she'll throw him under the bus whenever she can. This is the disgraceful wife. She humiliates her husband, herself, and her church. On the contrary, there's the woman who bestows respect when her husband fails, when he's doing it right. She respects him. She focuses on his strengths. She defines him by the man God's making him into, and she's always speaking highly of him in front of the kids, in front of the church, in front of the world. This is the kind of woman that should be at the side of a leader in this church, especially with deacons. A deacon's wife needs to be dignified, following her husband's spiritual leadership and showing off the spiritual maturity he's building into his family. How are you doing at this, wives? How are you doing at respecting your husband, responding to his leadership, Are you disgracing him with the words you use and the mannerisms that you talk to him? Or are you highly exalting him? Are you elevating him in the eyes of those around you with the respect that you show him? Are you crowning him with honor? You have a choice. The Bible challenges you to be dignified, to show respect to him, and in doing so, to show respect for the gospel. It was a very big deal in the church in Ephesus because there were some women who were not respecting their husbands and they were showing up at church and they were doing things that were embarrassing. They were humiliating everything from the way that they were dressing. Some of the women, as you read in chapter 2, were showing up, uh, dressing all hoochie to church. They were not wearing respectable apparel. They were, they were blinging out with the, all these gold pearls and they were showing off their wealth and their husbands were humiliated because of the way their wives were dealing with them in the church. Some of them were not respecting the leaders of the church and the things they were saying were humiliating their husbands. Same thing was happening in the church of Corinth. They were embarrassing the church, the gospel, and their husbands. Be dignified. Show respect for your husband and the gospel. Now, in verse 11, it goes on to say this. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers. So here's the vice. Write this down. Number two, slander. Stop quarreling and falsely accusing others. You can write that down. Stop quarreling and falsely accusing others. <laughs> I'll give you this word in the Greek for slander just because I think it speaks for itself. The word for slander in the Greek is diabolos. Should we make this guy a deacon? Well, is his wife a diabolos? What does that sound like to you? What does that make you think of? What is it? Come on, say it louder. Is she a diabolos? I just want to keep saying it. It's so bad sounding. Why does that word make us think of the devil? Well, it's because one of the titles the Bible places on the devil is the accuser, the slanderer. And and because of that, that's where we get one of our words for devil. It's a devilish thing to falsely accuse someone else of wrongdoing. It's a devilish thing to accuse God of wrongdoing. And what you find, in the, even in the Garden of Eden, what did, what did Satan say when he showed up? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, is that what God said? Don't eat anything. You're done eating for good. Starve to death. It's not what he said. Satan shows up, and why does he, why does he pose the question that way? 
to challenge God of being not good. Did he really tell you you can't eat? He's slandering God. That's what Satan does. He's a slanderer. And so when we learn how to slander others, we realize that if we could say things that are not true about someone else, our husband or people in the church, that causes them great pain. And slander is something that is not befitting, the con- befitting uh, a leader's wife. How does God feel about slander? Proverbs 6 says the Lord hates the one who stirs up dissension. There's a list of things God hates. On the list is those who would stir up dissension. Proverbs also, as I mentioned, lists three different wives who you never want to become. The first one is the, uh, the, first one is the disgraceful woman who embarrasses herself and others. The second one is the quarrelsome wife. The quarrelsome wife uses her tongue to create all sorts of problems in her marriage, in her home, in her church. She's the quarrelsome wife. What does the book of Proverbs say about the quarrelsome woman? It says it's better to live on the roof than in the house with her. If you're a quarrelsome wife, your husband will improve his standard of living by taking a mattress up on the roof and living there. The Bible also says it's better to live in a desert than with the quarrelsome wife. Check this out. This is better than you. Is this a warning? You bet it is. For my husband to pick up a pillow in a tent and to go out there and lay down, his life just got better? My ears are open. How can I make sure I'm not becoming a quarrelsome person, a quarrelsome wife, a quarrelsome... If the quarrelsome woman, the slanderous woman, is standing next to the deacon, she'll take that slander she learned at home where she undercuts and she starts trouble and starts quarrels and she'll bring that to church. And then she'll start causing problems in the church. Sitting with your tongue is a very dangerous thing. It can cause all sorts of problems. How do I know if I'm becoming a slanderous, quarrelsome wife? Well, one indicator is any decision that the husband tries to make, the wife is always fighting him on it. Like, like if he's trying to get his way, it's over my dead body. Finances, children, schooling, college, what budget it? Over my dead body will he get his way. Everything's a fight. That's the quarrelsome wife. She will not let him lead. Slander is flammable. It burns people. It damages marriages. It damages the church. James 3, 5 to 6, we'll put it up on the screen, says this. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. Like how much damage can my tongue do to my marriage? It can set your whole life on fire. It can set your whole world on fire. <clears throat> the picture there is a person's all, whole body's on fire. So the Bible vividly warns us of the damage the tongue can do to your marriage and to your church, which is why this slanderous woman must not be standing at the side of a leader because she'll burn the church down with her mouth. Check this out. This is a picture of a church burning down in Detroit. Beautiful building. Wow. And it's coming down. How did that fire start? What destroyed the church? Your mouth. Your mouth. The words from your lips were flammable. Uh, How would you react if right now 
someone was in our nursery with a book of matches, throwing them on the carpet. What would you do? What would you do? Someone was in our nursery throwing matches on the carpet. Would you take drastic, instant, immediate action? All right. So, so the Bible says slander, sins of the tongue, are starting fires that can burn down the person's whole life. So what are you doing when someone is slandering someone else, a fellow Christian, someone in your church, their husband, heaven forbid, what are you doing when they're throwing those matches on the carpet? Are you just listening? That's sin. That's sinning with your ears. If you wouldn't let a person throw a match on the carpet, why would you let them throw a match on their marriage or on their church? We're supposed to put those fires out. We're not supposed to listen to that. You know there's a problem. You know there's a problem with someone's mouth. You know there's a problem with slander when their, their ears are closing to truth. They won't listen to truth or factual sources of information. Their ears are closing to truth. I don't want to hear it. But their ears are opening wide to suspicion or accusation. Huge Dumbo ears for suspicion and accusation. Tiny little mouse ears for truth. That's when you know there's a problem. Secrets are being kept and love is not the goal. What do you say when someone is slandering their spouse? What do you say when someone is running down a fellow Christian? What do you say when someone is undercutting a leader in the church? You say, I don't have ears for that. You say, I don't have ears for that. Listen, what I'm saying is you don't listen, uh-huh, 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 and then stand up for some, well, I think they're a good person. No, you shut it down. You say, I don't have ears for that. The Bible commands us to do this. You can sin with your ears. And if you listen to slander and gossip, you're sitting with your ears and the Lord will punish that. He hates it. He hates it. So what does spiritual leadership look like? The deacon's wife needs to be dignified, showing respect for her husband in the gospel, and we should pursue that virtue too. Deacon's wife should not slander. She should stop quarreling and falsely accusing others. And we should embrace and pursue that too. Number three, she should be sober-minded. You can write that down. She should be sober-minded. Sober-minded means don't drunk drive your life. Don't drunk drive your life. Some commands in the Bible are clear and focused, like don't commit adultery. I know if I am, I know if I'm not. But other commands are broad. It's a a catch-all term, and that helps us make righteous choices in a thousand different situations. This is one of those terms that's very broad. It's a big net. So, so, you know, am I committing adultery? No. Am I being sober-minded? Well, it's 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 more of like a, it's a broad term. Helps you make many decisions right. The word for sober-minded literally means be sober. So don't be drunk. But by extension, it means spiritually, morally, don't act like a drunk. See, it's got, it's got overtones of virtue. It doesn't just mean don't get drunk. That's not good. But it means don't live like you're a drunk, spiritually. Uh, what does the sober-minded person do. They're capable of putting one foot in front of the other, taking a steady course through life, especially when something knocks them down. They get right back up and they maintain their orientation. They keep their balance. What does the drunk person do spiritually? They're, they're not walking a straight course. They're, they're veering from side to side. They're steering the vehicle into harm's way. 
They can't put one foot in front of the other. And you're like, where are they going? They're all over the place. This is the person who's not sober-minded. I read about um, animals in Africa, in this one place in Africa, that live near the marula trees. And marula trees drop this fruit on the ground that ferments pretty quickly. And so, so the animals all know every year to come to these trees because the fruit falls off, it starts to ferment, they eat the fruit, and then they get blitzed. Totally blitzed. And they all just come. So check this out. These are drunk animals. an awesome party. Here's the lesson. The wife of a leader can't be spiritually wobbly. Can't be veering in her conduct in the Christian path, out of the Christian path. She can't be unstable, off balance, lacking focus. That can't be her. This can be in her conduct, meaning she can't be doing things that are like, what are you doing? And then, and then getting back on track, and falling off track, getting back on track. But, but this also speaks of her faith. She can't be believing things that are like, I don't know if I agree with this. I think this might be true. And it's like, what? That's not Christian. All right, fine. I'm back on the track. And she can't be veering side to side in what she believes doctrinally. She can't be living like a drunk. She can't be drunk driving her faith. She can't be drunk driving her marriage. She has to display this steadiness, this sober-mindedness, staying on the right course. The other word used, synonym, is temperate. It could be uh, translated sober-minded or temperate. The idea is, this is a woman who is driven by a Christ-controlled heart. She's driven by a Christ-controlled heart. She doesn't let anything else hop up in the wheel and start, and floor it, and start driving Drunk. There are many things that can show a person is not sober-minded. Maybe there's just a dizzying pace of life. And, and, in, and in the fog of trying to keep everything going, she just vacillates. She drops out of church. She drops out of small groups. She, she's just not doing well. It can be a trial. Something knocks her down discourages her. She's sick, but it takes her off track spiritually. She can be just weary and fatigued because of life, worn out. She just gives up. The righteous woman regains her orientation, stays on track. This is a quality we have to develop over time. Being sober-minded, being temperate, means you're able to regain your orientation and your equilibrium quickly. Um, Especially when you're hurt, when you're angry, when you're sad, or when you're disappointed. That's, That's especially when you need to walk one foot in front of the other down the straight path. Sober minded means don't drunk drive your life. The wife of a leader needs to be sober minded. 
This is an example to all women. We need to learn to be sober-minded. So give yourself a spiritual sobriety test. How are you doing with this virtue? Ask yourself this. Are you thinking clearly? Are your thoughts filled with biblical promises that are true? Whatever you're going through, is your mind filled with the truth? God made some promises. I believe he's going to keep them. God's word said, are you filling your mind with what is true? Or is your mind filled with suspicion or self-pity or anger or doubt or despair? Are you thinking clearly? Another way to ask this is, is your windshield fogged up? Are you seeing things clearly? Many things can fog up the windshield so that we just are not driving safely. We start hurting others and ourselves. Anger can fog up the windshield. So angry, maybe righteously so, but so angry that that's fogging up my view and I'm not thinking clearly. Pleasure and temptation can fog up the windshield and chasing after the, the fruit of sin. Despair, self-pity, feeling hurt, maybe rightfully so, but your hurt fogs up the windshield and you start driving drunk because of your hurt. Uh, anxiety can fog up the windshield. I don't, just don't know how we're going to make it through this. There's so many things it's not going to work. And your windshield is fogged up and you're driving drunk. Any of these things can fog up the glass and then you're just not thinking clearly. Spiritual sobriety test. Are you, are you saying things? that are true and faithful and restrained? Or are you talking drunk? The words coming out of your mouth. I don't know if God's ever going to do that. I can't believe it. Are you talking drunk? Or are you talking what's true, what's faithful, what's wise? You're never going to change. It's going to be the way it is forever. Are you talking drunk? Or are you talking faithfully and restrained? Drunks are known for a lot of things, am I right? Impaired vision, bad judgment, no verbal filter. Sinking into self-pity, sadness, melancholy, moaning about how awful their life is and you can't snap them out of it. Are you talking drunk? How are you thinking? How are you talking? And then what are you choosing? Are you steering your life into God's commands or are you steering your life away from God's commands? Are you veering into His will or off of His will? especially when you're confused or hurt or disappointed. The wife of a deacon needs to be sober-minded. She can't be drunk driving her life. And how much more the rest of those in the church who are learning from their example, they need to be sober-minded. So spiritual maturity and leadership is marked by being dignified, showing respect in the home, avoiding slander, not quarreling and falsely accusing in the home and in the church, being sober-minded, not drunk driving your life, thinking, saying, choosing, And then number four, being faithful. Being faithful. This means proving to be reliable, trustworthy, and spiritually committed. Instead of being unreliable, untrustworthy, and not committed spiritually. It says again in verse 11, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, and then faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. It's, It's kind of summary, but it also gets to the heart of it. You have to prove faithful. Prove faithful to what? Well, first, your husband. Write that down, given the context. Wives of deacons need to prove faithful in all things to their husbands. What does that mean? Well, basically, it, it means that the wife is supposed to be faithfully committed to her vows in her marriage. She needs to be committed to him, to the man. If she's not committed to him, if she's not 
committed to the marriage. If she's not devoted to him, then he's disqualified as a leader. She has to be faithfully, spiritually devoted to her husband. Proverbs condemns three types of women. The first one is the disgraceful woman. The second one is the quarrelsome woman. The third one is the sexually immoral woman. The wayward woman. And so we have all three found in this message. The wife needs to be faithful to her husband. She can't drift away into temptation. She can't diminish in her affections for her husband. As we ask ourselves, should this guy be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a small group leader or whatever, we ask about the man and then we ask about his wife. And one of the things we ask about his wife is, is she into him? Is she obviously into him? Because if we look at her and we watch her and it's like, she is obviously into him. That's a good thing. But if we're like, eh, we're not really seeing it. She doesn't really seem to be into him. There's like no affection. She's not really saying nice things about him. It doesn't look like he's going out of her way to honor him. She is not into him. That's a problem. And why is the Bible is just calling you out? You've got to obviously blatantly be into him, devoted to him, madly in love with him. That shows your spiritual maturity, which starts in the home. If you don't guard that, if you don't devote that, then you will be looking for this fulfillment of intimacy in other places. You'll start being into a different guy, the wrong guy, opening your heart to him. And whoever hears your heart is the man you're into. Whoever hears your heart is the man you're into. The one you feel you can trust and tell everything. That's the man you're really into. Hebrews 13.4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. She has to be faithfully devoted to her husband. But also, there's a spiritual connotation to this. She needs to be faithfully devoted to the gospel. You can write that down. To the church. To the Lord. She should be faithful in all things to the gospel. What does that look like? Well, it means she worships Christ. She's at church worshiping Christ. She's here. She's not gone. She's not missing in action. She's not here once in a while. She's here. She sings to the Lord who saved her soul. And she sings regardless of what life is bringing her way. She walks with Christ. She spends time in God's Word. Her Bible is all marked up. She's been through several Bible studies. She's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's not, a, it's not a task to try and get her into the Word. It's not a chore to try and get her to church. She's there. She's got godly women around her who are holding her accountable for her faith and her growth. She worships Christ. She walks with Christ. She works for Christ. She loves serving in the church. She loves stepping up and doing things for the Lord because she knows how much the Lord has done for her. She doesn't whine. She doesn't complain. She doesn't try and get out of the thing. She loves working for Christ. She knows her gifts. And she knows above all that her spiritual giftedness is there to serve others. And she loves most of all to serve in a way that produces spiritual maturity in the hearts of others. She's faithful, reliable, selfless, devoted to her husband and to the gospel. This is the portrait of a spiritually mature woman. This is spiritual beauty. Now the last thing I would want at the end of a sermon like this is to leave all the women feeling Guilty that they're not measuring up to a standard. You get plenty of guilt throughout your week making you feel like you're not measuring up to the standard of femininity found in our culture. So many programs and commercials showing you what the perfect mom and the perfect husband and the perfect woman really is and you're like, how can I measure up to that? Right? 
I can't mom like her or look like her or keep the house like that. And you're just like, I can't measure up, forget it. That's not what this message is supposed to be about. This message is supposed to be about showing you what true spiritual beauty is and showing you how God intends for you to find it. Listen, you can't manufacture this. You can't get all by yourself and say, I'm going to do it and be this one. You can't do it. You can't do it. True spiritual beauty comes from Christ. That's the only place you can get it. You can't You can't get a godly heart from an infomercial. Walmart doesn't stock a shampoo that will make you spiritually beautiful. Those commercials for makeup, what do they say? Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. You look at a godly woman and you're like, maybe she was born with it. No. Came from Christ. Where is your spiritual beauty going to come from? From Christ and nowhere else. The number one way Christ teaches you spiritual beauty is in your marriage. He uses your husband. Your relationship with your husband will produce the greatest spiritual beauty in your life. That's where it starts. The way you respond to him. Whether he's a Christian or not. Your response to your husband, your relationship to your husband, your love for your husband will produce true spiritual beauty. Then you bring that with you to church. Then you bring that with you to the world. But it starts in the home. Maturity and leadership Starts in the home. We need leaders in this church who have wives who are so lovingly devoted to the Lord and the husband that that the leader's wife becomes a person of true spiritual beauty. We need those leaders' wives to come to church and to help women, younger women who are younger in the faith and learning to love their husbands and raise their children. We need them to show what Christ can do in their hearts and how he can do it in their homes first. That's what we need to do. But it takes humility you feel like you hear a message like this and you feel like I got a long way to go, hey, join the club. Join the club. Spiritual leaders in this church know that they are not done yet. And anytime I see a spiritual leader who acts like they're all done and, you know, mission accomplished, I just go and push them right off the wall like Humpty Dumpty. Like, you will not treat other people as if you've got it all together and they need to figure it out. That's not leadership. Spiritual leadership comes from Christ and he is at work to this very day in our hearts. But understand, women, that true spiritual beauty comes from Christ alone. And so this is a chance for you to humble yourself in his presence, to go back to the cross and to say, I've got a lot of, got a lot of work to do, Lord. Come into my heart. Make me the wife of noble character that you designed me to be and help it to start today. Let's take that to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we know that you have your eye on the leaders of this church. You have your eye on the wives of leaders in this church. You want want the fruit of the Spirit to be abounding in their hearts. And we know it starts with men taking the lead. We know it starts with wives being willing to follow the spiritual leadership of their husbands. So, Lord, strengthen up the marriages in this church as we humbly come before you and confess that there's not a perfect marriage in this room. There's not a perfect husband or wife in this room or on this planet. Help us then to see where you're leading us and to embrace that you're challenging us to press on. Pray that you would give us the humility to love one another and keep our vows, which are impossible to keep without you. And I pray that as you produce the fruit of maturity in our hearts, that you would then give hope to all those around us who are looking to our leaders for help and encouragement and support. 
Father, raise up leaders in this church who are first in their homes learning to love one another, learning to be humble, forgiving, repentant, joyful, devoted. And I pray that then that would come to church and that you would build that into the family of the faith. And fill your household, Lord, this church with devoted love to one another. Rid it of slander and malice and wrath and fill it with joy and peace and love. May it start with the leaders. I pray this in Jesus' name.